historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. So, a few days ago, at 5 a.m., I'm in Jerusalem. I actually went for a run, and in the Israeli summer, if you don't go for a run early enough, you are sizzling. So, I'm in my car still, pulling up to the place where I want to start running. I am at a red light, and a van pulls up in a lane next to me. I looked over, and there must have been 10 or more Haredi Jews. Black hats, black jackets, the works. You know, the ultra-Orthodox Jews. The passenger rolled down his window and asks me for direction to the old city. I was more than happy to help. When done giving him directions, still at the red light, it was a really long red light, he says to me, thank you very much and may the third temple be rebuilt quickly. As you know, we had two temples, the last of which was destroyed 2,000 years ago. So I replied to him, but there already is a third temple. He looked at me perplexed, trying to figure out if I was not altogether there or just being provocative. He chose the first option and wanted to educate me, saying, there's no third temple. On the place where the ancient temples were located are now Muslim holy places. And to that I replied, yeah, I know, but you really can't see the third temple? Are you blind to it? It's called the State of Israel. Our state is the third temple. We don't need an iconic building. Now, we're still at the red light. Turn out red light was broken. He looked at me almost with compassion and said, you must live in Tel Aviv, the city of superficial and trivial life. I thank you again for the directions and may the third temple be rebuilt anyway. We smiled at each other, each for his own reasons, nodded goodbye, and then proceeded to run the red light. He obviously had no clue about me or Tel Aviv, but I realized that I too was naive about who he was. This episode is called A Tale of Two Cities. Jerusalem and Tel Aviv are an hour drive, without traffic of course. So close and yet vastly different in many ways. Or are they? One thing is for sure. In recent years, the two places became the metaphor for the divisiveness among Israeli societies. And I say societies in plural. In order to understand a little deeper, I invited Abraham Silver, a senior Israel educator and an author. Abraham is also an architect. He is a lecturer on the architecture of Jerusalem at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Welcome, Abraham. Thank you for having me. Oh, a pleasure. So I want to start out with a question about a certain show I saw, actually a very popular show. A few years ago, I watched the CBS show 60 Minutes that did an episode on Tel Aviv. And there was a few things there that I was kind of wondering about, wanted to ask you about. So for instance, they said that Tel Aviv was, and I quote, Miami of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you agree with that statement? It's pretty common to compare the two. And it kind of makes sense on a superficial level. Bars, beaches, great party cities. They both seem like they really are the same kind of place. But if you scratch the surface of Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv was created to challenge the norms of the existing Jewish society when it was created in the early 20th century and is in fact still exists to redefine what Judaism is first in the 20th century and now, of course, in the 21st century. Well, that's, that, that's interesting, you know, but, but then I heard something else and I actually heard the mayor of Tel Aviv. I can understand 60 Minutes thinking it's like the Miami, but the mayor of Tel Aviv something, said something interesting as well. He said that Tel Aviv is an island of sanity in this country. Now, was he just doing like public relations for Tel Aviv or does he really believe that? I love this question. If Tel Aviv is an island of sanity, then of course, 60 Minutes view that it's just superficially Miami Beach doesn't make any sense. The question isn't whether or not Hudayi believes it. The question is, why is he saying it? What does this actually mean? And what it means is that Kuldai sees Tel Aviv as a central progressive liberal city in Israel and the direction that Israel should move towards. This is the ideal that Israel should be. 
And that's what Kuldai sees in his city. Then they said something else in that case, and kind of tagging along that. They said that the Tel Avivians are no longer passionately political. All they really care about is their coffee on the famous open liberal Schenken Street or having the beer on the beach. What do you say to that? Well, first, Schenken Street doesn't define great coffee. And I also disagree with the statement that Tel Avivians are no longer passionate politically. I think it's a misguided stereotype. Every week there's a public demonstration in Robin Square about some issue that's affecting Israeli society. Regardless of your political opinion, there's a new government. And watching the outpouring of Tel Avivians in the square to celebrate the new government should prove that the statement's not true. There's something else going on here. It can best be labeled as survival. For the people who live in Tel Aviv, they're living their lives. And their lives are pretty comfortable. Remember, on the surface, it's like Miami Beach. What Israelis do, especially the Israelis living on the coastal plain, is that they compartmentalize. They feel they're living in paradise. They don't ignore the issues. They compartmentalize them. When an issue comes up, they're passionate about it. But if they don't need to, if it isn't an immediate problem, they push it aside in favor of their happy daily lives. So Abraham, you know, I, I like to give context always so that people understand where we're coming from. And I failed to mention in the beginning that you also do some unbelievable tours of Tel Aviv. I've been on a couple of them and they're just amazing. So I want to take a step back and basically talk a little bit about the creation of Tel Aviv. Tell us a little bit about Tel Aviv and its establishment. Well, Tel Aviv was established to be a Jewish city, not politically correct, but a Jewish city over 100 years ago. And the concept was to redefine Judaism away from just being in a synagogue, but to be the embodiment of life, cultural, national, every single way. So, for example, the holidays are the Jewish holidays. The language is a Jewish language. But the idea was make Judaism whole again, the way it once was in biblical times, where it was more than just religion, not that it couldn't also be religion, but it was national, cultural, as I've already said. And that's the purpose of Tel Aviv, to create a Jewish city, and by Jewish, they meant the same way there's a French city, Paris, or an Italian city, Rome. How was Tel Aviv physically established? I mean, because there was Jaffa, that's today part of Tel Aviv, but Jaffa is, you know, smaller now, and there was nothing north of Jaffa, and yet Tel Aviv somehow sprung up. So how did that happen? Well, one of the remarkable things about Tel Aviv and the concept of being Israeli is that 60 families walked out of Jaffa and wanted to establish that, Iri Rishonah, the first Hebrew city, that Jewish city that I'm talking about. Nothing in their reality said that they should actually succeed since the port was really Jaffa. They wanted to make a break with the past and with the port itself, yet they did succeed. And there's a lot of different mechanisms as to why they succeeded. But the value here is that if you try hard enough, even if it seems impossible, you'll succeed. And that's a value that is permeated through Israeli society. I got to tell you that I often see this photograph of the 60 families you're talking about. I think it's called the Seashell Lottery. The photograph was taken by Avram Soskin. And when I look at these people, I say, boy, are these people crazies? They're just standing on a sand dune. Are they crazies? Are they visionaries? I guess you're telling me they're visionaries. Well, I do want to say just kind of like when Shimon Peres finished being president of Israel at 90 years old, one of the things he said in his final speech to the country was, don't forget, when there's nothing, you can do anything. Anything. Look what we did in Tel Aviv. Oh, that's wonderful. So um, also Tel Aviv has its own kind of declaration, right, that was written up. Can you tell us a few words about that? Well, when they got up on that sand dune, they, they declared what they wanted to do. And they did want to be the first Hebrew city, which means that they wanted to be a Jewish city, specifically Jewish in the way that I described it. They also wanted to create a Jewish culture, which included speaking Hebrew. They also had a vision for their city. And that was that they wanted to build the New York of the Middle East. It actually says that in their declaration. As the city of New York is the gateway to America, so we'll modernize our city. And one day it will be the New York of the land of Israel. Who, who were the first Tel Avivians then? 
Well, it's interesting. We think of the pioneers as the kibbutzniks, as the farmers, and they were the pioneers. But most people, or many people, actually moved to the city, and it was a pioneering city. They were philosophers. They were intellects. They were people that were educated and that wanted to go out and do something new. That's the basically the modern Jew or the uh, the revolution of modern Judaism on a national level? Yeah, that's the definition. In other words, Tel Aviv is very much that definition. It's what they call the new Jew, somebody who wouldn't only be praying in a synagogue, but who would be someone who could be a worker, who could be um, intellect, who could be a soldier, who could take control of their own lives and their own destiny. So we understand Tel Aviv somewhat, and now let's talk a few words about Jerusalem in the context of Israeli society. Because we know Jerusalem is ancient, we know it's thousands of years old, we know it's cradle of monotheism, but what about the context of Israeli society in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is a couple of things. First of all, it tends to be more religious. I want to kind of break the stereotypes here a little bit, because there are elements of each of the different societies, that everything we're looking at in each of the different cities. But Jerusalem tends to be more traditional, more religious. That doesn't mean that they're not Zionist or that no there as a Zionist. In fact, it is one of the Zionist cities as well. But the definition or the prism is a much more traditional looking prism. So now that we're looking at society with different lenses, I want to, and you know, nothing in Israel is apolitical. And so I want to mention a couple of things that I heard lately that are kind of disturbing, but are interesting to discuss. So first of all, we have a Knesset member who is a religious, modern Orthodox Knesset member. His name is Betzalel Smutrich. And he, the other day, said something that was um, kind of disturbing. He said, the Delta virus spread due to the gay pride parade in Tel Aviv. As a matter of fact, he used the word in Hebrew, histolelut which could mean rampage. He also said, no one has the guts to say this out loud, but that's the reason it's spread. By the way, the Ministry of Health, run by Nitzan Horowitz, who actually is gay, says nonsense. The Ministry of Health said the spread of the virus is due to people returning from Israel, to Israel, sorry, from abroad, that didn't comply with their mandatory quarantine. And they gave the examples of cities like Binyamina, not far from where I live, and Modi'in that were infected with the Delta virus even before the parade. So, you know, there's that. So, and the question is, Knesset member Smutrich joined this just for political reasons or otherwise? And the second part I heard was that some of the opposition leadership described the current government as a bunch of Tel Aviv people who don't really understand, they said, and between the lines are really saying they don't really care about the periphery and the rest of the population. So again, what is this about? What I think it's about is the tale of what we started in this conversation was the tale of two cities, but it's really the tale of two societies here. And that is a society that is more liberal and a society that's more traditional. And Smultrich comes out of that more traditional society and that prism. What this is about is interesting because not only is much of the opposition live in greater Tel Aviv, even though they're making this comment, the fact of the matter is that Tel Aviv is a tiny city. It's only 450,000 people. But Greater Tel Aviv has over 4 million people. In fact, the population of Israel, the state of Israel, is 9 million people, which means about half of the people of the country live in Greater Tel Aviv. And of course, that means that it's not monolithic. There is an ultra-Orthodox community in Tel Aviv, in Greater Tel Aviv, B'nai Brak. Their rivals are, in fact, larger than the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem. And that would be true in finding anyone. The people they're talking about periphery, they themselves live in Tel Aviv. So we're not talking about Tel Aviv City or even Tel Aviv area. We're talking about Tel Aviv and ideal. And we're talking about the values of this progressive society versus the values of a more traditional society. 
Okay, so we mentioned progressive society and traditional society, or a more traditional society. And I want to expand that a little bit because if you look at Israel, there aren't two societies. There are actually four major societies. And there's more than that, but there are four major blocks of society. And at the risk of being a bit superficial, since each of the following groups that I'll just mention in a minute can be studied academically for years, the groups are as follows. First, there are secular Jews. And when I say secular, in Israel, secular Jews is not the same as secular Jews abroad. You mentioned the fact that people live a Jewish life in Israel, and so it's very difficult to be secular. But the secular society in Israel maybe could be described as people who see their Jewishness as a peoplehood. The secular Jews, for the most part, want to live in a liberal, democratic, and open society. Then there's another part of society that you mentioned called the Haredim, which is, again, the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And they could probably best be described, and again, I'm doing an injustice. They could be described best as wanting to live an autonomous life, especially as far as their schools are concerned, their education, and wanting to live somewhat isolated from the rest of the society. Then we have a third group called Datilu Umi, which would be called in English National Religious Jews, that live an observant life combined with an ideology of Jewish redemption in the ancient land promised by God. Now, not everybody, but that, that definitely is a, at least a political theme among that group. And then there's a fourth group here I'm doing an injustice. The fourth group are Arabs. And the reason I say I'm doing an injustice is because there are Muslim Arabs and there are Christian Arabs and there are Druze who some see themselves as Arabs and others don't see themselves as Arab. But in general, Israeli Arabs live within their communities, either in their villages or cities. Many of them feel a split identity between being Israeli and Palestinian, identifying with the Palestinians. Their leadership, for the most part, prefers to live in a state that isn't considered Jewish. And I guess that could be understood. But the most important point here among the four groups is that each one of these groups sees the other as a threat to their way of life. Can you expand on that? What's incredible about what you just said is that it's reflected in Israeli society in deep ways. We have four different educational systems. And the four different educational systems are each one of the different groups that you just described. Each one has their own educational system. So it's embedded in Israeli society. And therefore, they, there are challenges even in a relationship of talking with each other. But it's more complex than that, historically and sociologically. So I want to kind of do historically for a second, which is that if you look at the secular Israeli community that you're talking about and the national religious community, remember that story of the sand dune that people created Tel Aviv, created Israeli society when they were creating Tel Aviv? People standing on that sand dune were secular and religious and Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Those are the people that created the society. They're within that meta-narrative. And that's the reason why, if you look politically today, the first national religious prime minister that we've ever had, Naftali Bennett, is sitting in a coalition with Yair Lapid, who is at least identified as the great secularist of his time. And that makes sense, because after all, their ideological predecessors were both standing on that sand dune creating Tel Aviv. Let's go back to the four groups a second, and let me ask you this. Is there commonality of the four groups? And as President Rivlin had said in 2015, can we create a shared Israeli character? Well, in 2015 at the Herzliya Conference, President Rivlin spoke of tribalism and of these four tribes that you described. And when he spoke about that, he described that we came from different places. The question was, can we create a common shared future together? We kind of have a common shared present as well. Many families in this country, on the Jewish side, if you're secular, you have someone in your family who's Haredi, who's ultra-Orthodox, who's a relative, and vice versa as well. So families are much more diverse than what the society describes itself as being. Number one, I already spoke towards politically their alliances, but there's something that's deeper than that, actually. If you look at Jerusalem, or if you look at Tel Aviv, all of those elements exist in those societies. President Rivlin specifically spoke of Jerusalem, and what's amazing about Jerusalem is that it's the largest Arab city in Israel. 
And it's also the largest ultra-Orthodox city in Israel. And it's the largest religiously observant city in Israel. And it's the second largest secular city in Israel. And that's true for Tel Aviv too, not the same numbers. But there's the ultra-Orthodox in the Arab community and obviously the religious and the secular community. There are already pushes from the ground up for there to become one narrative. And one of the great examples of that is that there is a movement to unite the secular and the national religious school systems because the national school system doesn't get enough what, of what's called core education. And from the secular community, they're also interested a little bit more about learning about tradition. So there are movements that are actually in Israeli society to say, first of all, on the ground, how we can put this together. The question is, how do we find one future together? How do we say, wait a minute, there are things that we all have in common, security, education, obviously infrastructure. Can that work to our advantage to say we have one image of a future Israel together? It sounds like the future, our future, Israeli future, has a challenge of trying to find a shared Israeli character, shared Israeli identity. Abraham, you mentioned education, for instance. Again, President Rivlin talked about how do you educate the future generation? Do we have programs for youth to get to know each other, each other's narratives, each other's culture, how they lived? Can we have a shared higher education where, and you know, in Israel, all higher education is subsidized. Can we have commonality that stems from higher education. How about governing together? You mentioned Jerusalem in the sense that all four groups live in Jerusalem together. Can they govern together and actually do sit in the city hall together? Can we have other regional clusters all over Israel? There are examples of holidays, like in Haifa, there is a holiday called the Holiday of Holidays. They try to celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, and either Ramadan, Eid al-Fitr, or Eid al-Adha, depending on which is closer to the date. And again, you mentioned that our current government shows that they can actually politically even sit together. What about the economy? Advancing high-tech industries all over Israel, in the periphery as well, where people of all four groups will work together. That could be a big push towards them getting to know one another in the workforce. If any of this is going to happen, it'll need the strong support of, first and foremost, the political leadership, also the media, the academia, as I mentioned, the business sector, and lots of marketing. Let me jump in here. If Where we began this conversation was 60 Minutes painting a particularly superficial picture of Tel Aviv. It's not really the tale of two cities. It's not even the tale of two societies. It's four different tribes that have different narratives how they got here and whether or not we as a society can move forward together to create one unified future. Abraham, I wanted to thank you. Your words are very important. Well, it was a pleasure being here. Thank you, Itai. That is it for today. You can access all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. You can also access all of our episodes on our website, InsideIsrael.fm.